The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers based on their personal and or professional experience with grief and bereavement. Good day, everyone, and welcome to the Lighthouse Beacon Podcast. My name is Rami Shami, and I am your host. Hello, background on our organization. We're located in Oakville, Ontario, Canada, but we provide services to the greater Toronto. We offer facilitated grief peer support groups to help children, teens, and their families through the journey of a death-related loss. Our groups are ongoing and open-ended, and that offers each family member the opportunity to participate in their own unique way. But before we begin today, I feel it's imperative that we honor the land that we are meeting on. And there's been a lot of controversy and a lot of pushback and unfortunately a lot of organizations that pay it no mind and have actually refused to honor the land that we are living, breathing and meeting on. And this is the land acknowledgement for, for Toronto and it's even more important than just recitation of a land acknowledgement to use it as a reflection, to honor it as a reflection of all that's transpired with Indigenous peoples so that we may settle on this land, live and work. I acknowledge the land that I'm standing on today, that we are meeting on today, is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. I also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 signed with the Mississaugas of the Credit and the Williams Treaty signed with the multiple Mississaugas and Chippewa bands. And in that reflection, it goes without saying the genocide, the harm, the murder that has been incurred by and experienced by Indigenous peoples for many a generations. And now it's being exemplified or exacerbated with the uncovering, not the finding, but the uncovering of Indigenous children in unmarked graves across Canada. We have launched these podcasts as an organization in an effort to create a greater awareness, not only to children's grief support, but especially the diversity within children's grief. We have joining us today representatives from the Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities Palliative Care Committee, IDDPCC, who are developing an IDD Palliative Care Toolkit for Ontario. On the call today is a legend, Tracy Human, and her incredible colleagues, Kara Grosset and Adrian Carmichael. However, there is someone that is not joining us today. And I would ask Tracy to share with us what has transpired. Thanks, Rami. We are here for a very important um, discussion and sharing. And unfortunately, one of our members, the co-chair of the Intellectual and Developmental Disability Palliative Care Committee, passed away over the weekend. And so it is uh, in her honor and in, uh, as part of her legacy that we carry forward on this podcast uh, to shed some light for people living with developmental uh, disability and intellectual disability. You know, Claire um, had been such a key and pivotal uh, stakeholder in our committee, and uh, I, what brings to mind uh, a, 
at these times is her her expressing how um, she felt like a lone voice crying in the wilderness, trying to drive the importance of palliative care approach for people um, living with intellectual or uh, and or developmental disabilities. And uh, she would want us to carry on and and shed a light and raise raise the voice that we that we so uh, appreciate having today. And so we we really appreciate Rami that we have an opportunity to bring our message to others. Yeah, absolutely, Tracy. Tracy, and what a way to honor her in in that regard. So Tracy is a chair of the IDD PCC. Kara, you know, Kara, I have a colleague at Lighthouse for Giving Children, and we flip-flop. Some people address her as Kara, and some people address her as Kara. So I'm glad you clarified me that it's Kara. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and we have Kara and Adrian are part of the working group, creating the Loss, Grief, and Bereavement module for IDD Palliative Care Toolkit. Now, if I may ask uh, Tracy, Kara, and Adrian, a little background, a little bit on your on your professional backgrounds, if you might share. So who would like to go first? <laughs> I can go first. So my name is Adrian Carmichael, and I am a social worker at Surrey Place in Toronto, Canada. Um, and now Surrey Place is uh, kind of one of the main agencies that provides clinical services to people with IDT across the lifespan. And so my role at Surrey Place is to provide counseling to adults with IDD and their caregivers. Thank you, Adrian. I can go next. <laughs> my name is Kara Grosset. I'm also a social worker in private practice in the Hamilton, Ontario, Canada area. Um, I'm also a researcher and a social work educator, specialized in grief and trauma work. Recently, I completed my PhD dissertation and my research explored the grief experiences of adults uh, with IDD after uh, the death of someone who was important to them and uh, had wonderful participants who shared some incredible insights into their experiences. Thank you, Kara. And my name is Tracy Human. I am uh, located in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Um, and clinically, uh, uh, as a nurse, have 40 years experience that spans high acuity caring for individuals with serious life-threatening events and uh, and then moving from high acuity units into community-based palliative care for individuals and family living and dying from chronic progressive life-limiting illness. The past 13 years I've been in my palliative um, consultant role as uh, not only a consultant to, to providers, but also a clinical educator, and have had the honor to sit on many advisory boards and clinical uh, councils here in Ontario. Thank you, Tracy. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm tempered with my excitement today, given the tremendous loss that has, you know, has transpired. But to have you know, someone like yourself, Tracy, who is an incredible mentor, not just me, but the entire field, and to have the knowledge and expertise and passion of Kara and Adrian on a podcast that I'm facilitating is like a kid in a candy store. I mean, I'm, I have so much I want to share with you, almost so much I want to share with the world in receiving the information 
as we honor Claire and honor the individuals who live with IDD and who are grieving uh, and who are bereaved. So if I may ask you, Tracy, could you give us a bit of a background about the IDD Palliative Care Committee? Oh, absolutely. Be my honor. So uh, about 18 months ago, uh, I was connected with Claire and another one of our colleagues, Bob Park, who is a consultant ethicist to Surrey Place. And Bob and I were on the Ontario Palliative Care Network Clinical Advisory Council together. And um, we, we realized in our advocacy at that council about, and let's not forget about people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, right? Um, uh, that this circle came around that I recognized him as my ally and he recognized me and then his work with Surrey Place. And I've had the benefit of working with Surrey Place on different educational opportunities and full-day um, training conferences on the, the model of the palliative care approach so that it could be translated for the individuals that they were serving. Um, and so he connected me to Claire, and the three of us came up with this idea. Okay, right? Now, let's let's go, let's go, let's go, let's move. And, uh, you know, it was the perfect timing. Uh, and so... We approached the uh, executive of the Ontario Palliative Care Network and made a pitch to them. Um, and they were incredibly supportive um, and they helped us do our membership call. From that, we got 40 uh, professionals from across the province of Ontario wow. here in Canada from the developmental service. Um, uh, provider sector, healthcare, and palliative care specialists, both community-based and uh, tertiary-based, that all had this passion, had recognized the need, and we've all come together to design this palliative care toolkit. They're all volunteers working off the side of their desk, driven by passion and dedication and compassion for these wonderful individuals that are living in their families with DD or IDD. But we recognize in our shared experiences, many of the tools don't translate to individuals with uh, IDD. And because this is a, a national podcast or it could go internationally, in some other countries, they call it people with learning disabilities. Mm -hmm. um, and here in Canada, you know, the, the terms kind of used interchangeably is developmental disabilities. We like to use IDD, intellectual and developmental disabilities, because not everybody with a developmental uh, or a disability has intellectual disability, right? So we want to capture all the uniqueness and individualizations of the people that we want to serve with this toolkit. And through that, you know, you put out the call, if you build it, they will come. And through that, I've had the honor of working with Adrian and Claire. Yeah. Amazing, Tracy. You know, you mentioned a term individualization. And when we talk about diversity within, you know, social services and healthcare and what have you, that term is usually referred to ethnicity, color of your skin, language, you know, your your communal culture, the food you eat. But diversity is so <laughs> diverse. And and I think an aspect of diversity that's often marginalized is IDD. 
and and those kinds of uh, demographics and, and domains. I want to just quickly ask you another question, Tracy, Karen, Adrian. I've heard the term among you know organizations that support people with uh, intellectual and developmental disabilities is the term exceptionalities. May I ask your thoughts on that term? Um, this is Adrian. It's, it's a term I'm quite familiar with. So I actually began my career in teaching before I became a social worker. And it's uh, kind of the the main term that is used in the teaching world uh, to describe kind of any type of disability. And I think one of the things that that term kind of recognizes is the, you know, the talent and kind of what makes someone special. And it really focuses on kind of the abilities uh, and is more of a kind of a positive rather than kind of a deficit oriented term. Thank you, Adrian. Yeah, that, that makes that makes sense. I hear it utilized uh, a lot and, and sometimes countering the deficit terminology. Now, just circling back briefly, I understand that the IDD palliative care toolkit is focused on individuals living with developmental disabilities. And my interest and, and my excitement to invite you to this podcast really surfaced after I attended your workshop a fascinating and insightful workshop at uh, the HBCO conference this past April. And why it resonated is because I find not just in our organization of children's grief, but in many organizations of grief support specifically, is that these inappropriate, misaligned, malaligned referrals, right, of individuals who are referred for their grief and bereavement support to organizations that are either not trained, not equipped, um, lack the knowledge, or it just doesn't fit in terms of their domains of service. So may, may I ask you, how can a death-related loss be experienced by somebody who has intellectual and developmental disability or disabilities? It's Tracy. Uh, I'd like to respond to that, if I may. Individuals with IDD, living with IDD, experience loss. Um, grief and bereavement, the same as anyone. The expression, communication, and the responding approach and techniques that are used to help process that and hopefully help guide into a healthy form of grieving are different. But it really depends on the level and disability, the level of intellectual disability, and the stage of developmental landmarks. So I think it's important to acknowledge that we don't just consider law um, associated to death and a death-related experience for these individuals. You know, it was, it, it brought to mind for me, Rami, when you were talking about the territorial honoring and uh, people are sometimes not aware of the genocide that happened to these individuals, right? During war times, the genocide in World War II, their historical marginalization, their warehousing and institutions, um, the levels of abuse that they experienced in many of those institutions. And our toolkit is designed for adults. And, you know, we're here on this pediatric podcast. Why is because people think that, you know, they infantilize them, right? And so what we're wanting to shed light to is where by the time they come out of the pediatric stream at 18 and they move into the adult world, 
there's an awful lot of loss, first of all, that will be driving um, the emotions and behaviors that challenge, uh, never mind moving on to experiences of death, right? Their losses are experienced all along. And same for the family, right? Numerous kinds of hopes, wishes, the typical anniversaries, landmarks that we all experience and that you hope for and dream of for your children, often prenatally at birth, through infancy, you know, that walking landmark, that speaking landmark, you know, all the way through. And we start thinking about school and we think about graduations and we think about marriage and grandchildren and all those sorts of things. And all of that has to be modified and addressed when we're looking at a loss, grief and bereavement, a caring approach, you know, the prenatal aspect of the loss of hopes for a healthy pregnancy and a well child and all those wishes for the future and, you know, the growth and development landmarks, depending on whether mild, moderate or profound disabilities are experienced in each individual case. And the loss of personhood and autonomy uh, is a big one as well. Tremendous stigmatization and marginalization that many of these individuals and families experience. And, you know, when we think about population data, these individuals make up maybe 1% of the population, but they make up a huge portion of the care sector needs, right? And so there's significant loss on numerous levels, historically, all the way through. And so when we're talking about death-related losses, all of these are micro-deaths. That's my view of it. And it might not be a life death, but they're micro deaths. Uh, and many more micro deaths than the average person would experience. Yeah. Well, that's where we can also celebrate the resiliency of these individuals, <laughs> their ability to find joy in so many things that many of us don't, that should. So those are some of the things that I would say. What say you, my honorable colleagues? What would you add to that? Uh, this is Kara. I would 100% agree loss histories are tremendous um, for folks and was one of the biggest findings in terms of the history of loss, again, through so many areas of life for the folks who participated in my research. And I think often what can happen, though, is those loss histories aren't known. So in the systems of care uh, where folks find themselves grieving, these loss histories and often traumatic histories aren't known as they've gone from different services or services or support folks in and out of their lives. So, you know, paying attention to um, trying to gather that information is so incredibly important. And I think as well, often folks who are grieving and they grieve across all the same domains as we do, right? Emotionally, behaviorally, cognitively, spiritually, socially, as we do, but often within systems of care and control where, you know, there's, highly um, routine kind of days um, where there's not space necessarily made for the feeling and expression of tremendous loss, um, you know, and, and that really needs to be addressed. I think that's all I'll say for that right now. I'll pass it on to Adrian. Sure. Thanks so much. I, I uh, agree with the things that have been said. I think those are things that I also notice in, in my work. I think sometimes, you know, what can get missed is 
not just collecting that kind of lost history, but understanding like what is the significance the person attaches to those losses? Um, you know, what is the meaning that they derive from them? Um, so I think sometimes because people with IDD may not express kind of their experience of a loss in the way we expect, the assumption is that, um, you know, that maybe they're not grieving or maybe they're okay. Um, when in fact that may not necessarily be the case. So for instance, people, you know, may show things such as like uh, sadness more as irritability, um, which may not initially kind of be recognized as kind of a grief response. And so sometimes it takes, you know, a bit of digging to kind of uh, get at what the person might be experiencing. So like, for instance, someone might, you know, talk about being really anxious about going to the doctor or kind of their own physical health issues. And then we, you know, when we do some digging, we might find out that, oh, you know, they share the same symptoms as someone else in their life who passed away. And they're assuming like, oh my gosh, because I have the same symptoms, I must be dying. And so of course they're anxious when in fact, you know, this may not, you know, the, uh, you know, the kind of the health issues that they're experiencing are not necessarily the same, but we can understand how they might make that connection and then the kind of anxiety that ensues. And so thank you for that, everyone. And so someone who's receiving grief support agency, we'll, we'll say that, is receiving this quote unquote case history and loss history and what have you, would it be an imperative that they have education and training with how to support people with living with IDD? Is that, a, or could it be anyone that's in grief and bereavement that they would be able to access and know how to draw out those unique and intricate experiences of loss for someone living with IDD? It's Kara, I can speak to some of that. I think anyone um, approaching folks with compassion and caring can certainly work to gather this information alongside family members, staff, and the person themselves labeled with the intellectual disability, because they're at the center of this and should be. Um, whether, again, they use words to communicate or other means to communicate, you know, again, seeking that information is so important. And, and making it okay to talk about and to recognize. And I think when you talk about education, I think that's sorely lacking certainly I can speak from social work education at the university level in my experience is courses on um, death and dying or grief um, and or disability are if an elective if not there's none never mind the intersection of them we it's it's not looked at so you have folks out there who are very hesitant to approach this because they don't have professional and or personal comfort to go there with folks and to look at this really, really significant, important life experience that everyone has. But again, as Tracy said, the compounding losses across so many different areas of relationship is significant. So yeah, so I think there's education is sorely lacking, which again, then, you know, puts the person who's grieving with a lived experience at a disadvantage. And also having worked, I've worked over 30 years in the field and done uh, community bereavement mutual aid support for children and, and teens for many, many years. And we didn't get referrals for children 
or teams um, labeled with IDD to our groups. And I thinking, why not? Like what's going on here? And I think again, that the different systems and organizations need to be communicating and talking and be much more inclusive in terms of um, the support we offer and to whom we make it available. And I think that, you know, not being afraid to, to do this kind of work and learn from it and learn from the folks with lived experience and then make these um, environments more inclusive and much more rich for the people who, who attend groups in the community could be really helpful. Yes, yes, Kara, especially that aspect of inclusivity. And, you know, I wanted to circle back to something you alluded to now that you referenced, Tracy. Tracy, you talked about micro deaths. And I wonder, is it safe to say that individuals living with IDD have a greater proportionality of micro deaths than, you know, the rest of the population? And in those micro deaths, how do they complicate, exacerbate, infiltrate a death-related loss? And what happens to that death-related loss when you have had these historical micro deaths? Uh, I think that a lot of marginalized, disenfranchised, stigmatized groups of people can relate to this as human beings. I don't think that it's unique to people living with IDD. And so I think what we're really looking at here is, you know, as uh, Kara mentioned about that layering uh, that makes this explosive kind of um, um, grief bomb. What we call it is complicated grief, right? We know that there's different types of, of grief, but in the impact of the types of grief that we would expect with many of these individuals, the very least to make sure to rule out is the complicated, how dense that grief is. As, you know, um, Adrian and, and Kara have been mentioning, you know, one of the things, you know, that comes to mind is a story that uh, Claire uh, has shared uh, about one of her clients through these the isolation with the COVID times that we've uh, all experienced globally, that one of her individuals was displaying high levels of emotional distress and exacerbation around behaviors that challenged and had become, that had pro- progressed to severe depression and um, and various different you know, individualized service care plans weren't being successful. And further exploration was that one of the loss, losses that this individual had experienced that was death-related was the fact that his mother had died. Um, and with the isolation, he assumed that all of his friends that he was used to socializing with must have died too. Or why wasn't he being able to have time with them? And then the ramification became quite significant. Once that was identified and they connected this individual virtually to say, no, they haven't died. Like, and they started doing virtual connections through, you know, different virtual platforms, uh, that resolved. But you can see how one trigger not interpreted through the lens of 
these micro deaths and losses, it just becomes explosively exacerbated because they've already got embedded complicated grief that hasn't been given light or opportunity to uh, move through. Yeah, well said, Tracy. Thank you for that. So then this, uh, in my mind, brings up the question is, why are individuals living with IDD referred to grief support organizations that use, you know, predominantly a pediatric approach, but these individuals are obviously not pediatric anymore? It's Tracy. I think it's because people don't know where to turn. They recognize the need. They're desperate out of either loving care a loving approach from, from family. They will have had a long history with pediatric providers already. And so there's a trust and a relationship and a recognition there. So they go to who they know, um, even though they have entered the adult stream for those that, that we serve particularly. Um, I think it's part of the infantilizing that happens. Um, and so that they think because you know, they may read at a grade one level that it must be a pediatric provider that services them, even though they're 50 years old. These kinds of reasons, you know, we have not enough grief and bereavement providers and services across the board. It doesn't matter to serve anyone or everyone. Never mind when we start getting into finely tuned, skilled providers um, that deal with unique forms of, of communicating needs uh, and interacting. You know, certainly many of individuals with moderate or profound have communication challenges where they are using text to communicate or they have micro expressions um, that they use to communicate, you know, that impacts part of it as well, uh, I would say. So um, they go to who they know who has the long history, who has a history of being able to do loss, grief, and bereavement support for individuals who may be um, nonverbal, who need different levels of learning and words use and um, techniques uh, that incorporate picture work, artwork, music work, these kinds of things in order to help process emotions. And that's where why they go to pediatric providers. I can add to that too. It's, it's Adrian. I think one of the other factors too is around kind of accessibility of, of grief support. So where, you know, grief supports do exist in the developmental sector, they're often really, really lengthy wait lists. And so there may be this perception that like children's grief supports are more accessible or more readily accessible um, and when you have someone who is in distress now, you know, a service that can, you know, engage the client sooner becomes more attractive. Yeah. And, you know, children's grief support across the board is already sparse, you know, organizations mm -hmm. like Lighthouse for Grieving Children, Season Center. I mean, COVID brought forth the opportunity for, you know, online platforms to support children, but that doesn't necessarily uh, it's not always uh, accessible, but I wanted to circle back to this terminology. And if we could just expand on it a little bit more, why, and I, I apologize if this sounds ignorant, I just wanted to be more fulsome in the sense that 
why are individuals living with IDD infantilized? Why are they stigmatized? What is what is it that's being stigmatized? You mentioned, Tracy, if they read at a grade one level, that's one piece of it. Can we look at some of the other aspects of how they're infantilized? It's Kara here. I think historically there's, you know, looking at sort of the eternal child, right? You know, because they have different abilities in terms of their day-to-day living skills and understanding that they're eternally children and should be treated like that. Um, So it's been a long-term sort of um, labeling in that way. And I also think it could also, you know, relate back to the history of institutionalization, marginalization, and oppression of folks. So it's not recognizing that people of different abilities still, you know, when they're adults, should be spoken to like an adult, should have, you know, can have responsibilities of being an adult. So it's this idea of when you're in need of care, that somehow you're more childlike or need of support. And um, so I think that's part of it is sort of this ongoing um, notion of folks labeled with intellectual disabilities of being these eternal children. And, And that's just not respectful. It's not appropriate. It doesn't respect people's abilities. It's Tracy. I think I would, I echo that wholeheartedly. And I would also add to it is so many of the etiologies, the genetic acquired or hereditary causes for the various types of IDD etiologies, they often result in differences in how the body develops. And so in some of those instances, the individual's body may be small. And so people just make that cognitive connection four feet tall or in a wheelchair and, you know, limbs are smaller and uh, head circumference might be smaller and they don't correlate chronological age with what they're seeing as, as the person's whole person and body there, right? So there's some of that that goes, it's multi-tiered, it's multi-leveled, the tone of some of the individual's voices. Right. And the timber and, and some don't get the vocal changes that come with puberty. Right. And, you know, and the list can go on of why then people automatically make this assumption that they, you know, that cognitive attachment to that they're children. And Tracy, you make me think of an important part, too, of using the medical model. People are classified with intellectual disabilities based on age levels, too. I often hear, well, they function they're, they may be 20, but they function at the level of a two-year-old. And exactly. I mean, exactly. Kind of, that kind of talk just reinforces treating people like children instead of looking at them as a 20-year-old who has abilities, unique abilities. And yeah, so he reminded me of that piece too. So on so that important. point, it's exceptionally important, but then on, on that point, and I, I, I referred to this because I've heard it in the field from frontline service providers, then why wouldn't they belong in a pediatric approach? I find that, you know, I, I talk a lot. <laughs> I like, <laughs> I'd like, like to jump on this. It's, it's decades of advocacy <laughs> that I'm sorry that swell up when I'm defending the personhood and autonomy of, of individuals. But Let's keep in mind that there are perfectly well able-bodied, I'm saying in air quotes, individuals who are illiterate, and we don't treat them that way. Yes. Right? There are perfectly well people out there 
functioning, doing amazing work, who read at a grade six level. So this prejudicial thing we do as human beings, applying judgment to who someone is and what they're capable of, really is not what we call individualized care. We're going to talk about a medical model. And the medical model, you know, is not the way to go in all things. There, there needs to be, a, you know, a collaborative approach to things. But that's what my soapbox goes to. It's Kara here. I would also challenge the idea of what's a pediatric approach look like in grief and bereavement care? Because having done children's groups, teen groups, working with adults, adult groups, I use, I have read storybooks and to, again, using the air quotes, able-bodied, neurotypical folks, stories to adults I work with who are, quote, neurotypical. I've done artwork projects. I've used music. I use it with children. I use it with adults. So how do, I don't think there's a clear, nor should there be, distinction between what's a pediatric approach to grief and what's an adult approach to grief, if that makes sense. Oh, it makes perfect sense. Absolutely. I think a lot of the models are being challenged right now. I really appreciate what you brought forth, uh, folks, but a lot of models are being challenged now, even in the developmental stages of how to support children's grief. Some of the work that was done by Danielle Lobo out at uh, Scarby Community Health Centers in having, you know, teens, youth, and children all in the same group because of maybe the culture of the community, the way that they support one another in grieving and not to separate them out in terms of developmental stages. There's, there's a lot of, it makes a lot of sense in terms of what your, your folks are bringing. Oh, Kara, if I could get on a little soapbox myself here, <laughs> join Tracy. Um, not, and sorry, Adrian, I'll, I'll be quiet after this, but Go I for think it. this also, um, this really to me speaks to the lack of education and the lack of accessible resources for support folks people in the lives of people uh, labeled with intellectual disabilities. And I'll give a couple examples of that. I remember getting, um, talking to a, a person who worked in a, a developmental services agency and they called me and because they knew of the research I was doing and they wanted to understand better about grief and grief support with folks labeled with intellectual disabilities. And they said, you know, I did a, a web search trying to find some tools or some information and the one thing I came across was how to explain death. And this is what it told me to do. It told this worker to have two goldfish, one alive swimming around in its bowl and another one dead. And these two goldfish, you would work with the person labeled with the intellectual disability and you would show them alive, that's the fish swimming around the bowl, alive, and then point to the dead one and say dead. And both of us were quite dumbfounded by this. And my first question was, well, how do you get a dead goldfish? Like, do I have to kill it? Like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> and so, <laughs> um, so it kind of humorously and, you know, scarily, if that's what's out there, that's pathetic. And it coincided with a time when I was uh, just getting to know Canadian Virtual Hospice and their mygrief.ca website. And I happened to meet their executive director and I started pitching about like, we need a module specifically about supporting folks with intellectual disabilities who are grieving a death or grieving, you know, a change in their life to have it accessible for support people 
so they understand what, you know, again, and informed by folks with the label so that they can understand how to better support people than showing a dead and an alive goldfish. So we have done that. And so on mygrief.ca just launched this spring, a whole module around supporting folks and understanding that their experience, again, is much like anyone else's, but and where it could be different and how, again, you can support people better. And then I'll share just one more other story that I had a call from a different person in a developmental services organization. And this was with a youth actually, who did not use words to communicate, you know, had this medical model label of functioning at a very young age, although they were in their teens and they had support at home and, and their parents had died and they were noticing, and again, these labels that are put on folks, but that this young person was perseverating, that's the, this person's words, not mine, at a picture of one of the parents on the wall and just tapping it and tapping it and tapping it and just kept doing that. And the question was, you know, I think we should take the picture down. What do you think? Because they're perseverating on this and it's, you know, listed all these negative things. And I said, I'm wondering if while they're doing this, could the worker talk about the picture, say to them, oh, you know, that's your parent. It looks like you guys are having fun there. Could put up more pictures. What do you think about that? You know, to not erase this person from the life or from the home, but rather bring them in more. And maybe this person, this young person tapping is a connection as opposed to a negative. So those are just a couple of examples. Absolutely brilliant. That's just to to reference the websites, that's Canadian Virtual Hospice, www.virtualhospice.ca or mygrief.ca. Is that correct? Yes, it is. And the module I'm talking about is module number 21. Excellent. Excellent. I really appreciate that because that's, you know, if, if we have these databases and these places where people can go and learn more and, and, and that the goal of this podcast and having you find people here is to create those streams and mediums of, of resources and referrals. Mm. I would piggyback on those exact points, you know, 40 years of research and work has been done in the Netherlands and the UK. And I'm mindful of Professor Sheila Baroness Holland. She was the first to write about the effects of of grief and bereavement uh, for people living with with IDD. And she's a professor of psychiatry uh, at St. George University in London, UK. And she's the founder of the website uh, and the approach beyond words. And it it has people, it's been informed by by people living with IDD. And there's training through her courseware. There's also resources to use um, with individuals to help them navigate their loss and grief. It uses picture books for those that relate more to images. It has, you know, all kinds of strengths around navigating that. And I know Adrian will be able to add more to this. Another well-respected leader internationally is uh, Professor um, Irene Tuffy-Wine. She actually has Breaking Bad News and Am I Gonna Die? And she has blogs and podcasts and webinars. It's available on YouTube. She has started up a virtual peer-to-peer grieving with uh, people living with 
IDD, where they support each other. And that's called grassroots group, which is a very interesting model to go and look at. Um, then there's people, palliative care for people with learning disabilities. They have resources, webinar, podcasts. Here in Canada, we, oh, I should probably say, you know, their uh, website is www.pcpld.org. Here in Canada and Ontario, we have Connectability, and they have an amazing page designed, uh, dedicated to helping to process grief better for people with IDD. And they have what Kara was talking about. Uh, it's not about erasing the person that they loved. It's about maintaining a connection and creating memory books and anniversary books and being mindful of those things. So much of the strategies do that. We also need to remember that we need opportunities for them to be involved in the process, to understand that someone is ill, right? Um, that they're transitioning to end of life, that they died, be involved in, in the rites and the rituals, attend the funerals or memorials, it, be included in some of, of it, even if it just means standing there with a picture and saying, this is my dad, you know? The Canadian Health and Wellness in a developmental disability conference that's, that's organized and put on by the University of Toronto's family uh, medicine department is amazing. That's where I met Kara <laughs> in February this year. Uh, so there are resources, you know. There may not be a whole bunch of Canadian ones, but like with anything, if there's a tried and tested model somewhere else and their resources are there until we have you know, something labeled a Canadian resource, then we, we adopt, adapt, apply, right? What would you say, Adrian? Mm -hmm. The other one I, I wanted to add was, this is a fairly new resource, is uh, the STEFI website. So it's S-T-E-F-F-I. And now this website was adapted um, from the Netherlands to a Canadian context. And what STEFI does is she explains... Um, you know, concepts in plain language. Uh, there's also a text and then there's also a visual component to the explanation. And it's specific to people living with IDD and they can kind of pace the, the learning or the explanation um, so they can pause and start or rewind if they need to. Um, and they have a module that's specific to grief and bereavement. So that's another kind of Canadian specific one that has uh, kind of recently been introduced that, uh, you know, might be interesting for folks to check out. That's wonderful, folks, because, I mean, literally my next question was, you know, some of the appropriate grief support models and engagements and resources. Uh, you just blew it out of the water in terms of what you were provided. <laughs> you know, because, you know, what, what ends up happening in, in uh, especially children's grief is that they have these referrals for people living with IDD. And they're, they're like, what do, what do I refer them to? What do we do? Do we keep them? Do we support them? I don't want to abandon them. I don't want to orphan them. What do we do? So these are wonderful resources in terms of how to support the people that provide the support. But a quick question, if I may ask, because I hear a, a bit of a discrepancy and I would love some clarification. At times I hear living with IDD and at times I hear labeled with IDD. What is the preferred way of, of identifying? This is Kara. My use of labeled with IDD comes from a critical disability studies perspective. 
where, you know, the person is living with a label, um, you know, and it sort of, it's acknowledging the fact of the person and sometimes may reject that label, may accept that label, but that it's a label socially constructed and medically constructed and put upon them. So that's a, I use that language um, because it's from critical disabilities. But again, in day-to-day um, -day life, I'm sure Tracy and Adrian have a better handle on that. In day-to-day -day life, those that are delivering direct services uh, or care approaches, um, living with. You might Excellent. hear them say living with DD, living with IDD, which is the IDD one is, is the Canadian, right? Excellent. Thank you. Because it comes down to context. Excellent. I, I appreciate that. Uh, just segueing now, because part of the, I mean, it's been so rich and, and I hope listeners are, are able to utilize a lot of the information and resources and links and, and what have you and that has been shared. But part of the purpose of the podcast also was what do those counselors, therapists, clinicians, organizations that receive referrals for individuals living with IDD who are outside their scope of engagement, meaning the age demographic, what are some of the suggestions of how they would refer, transition, assess? Is there any boundaries that you should create? I mean, that could be a secondary question, the policies within an organization, if that's necessary. But how do we manage that as, as organizations or even as you know individuals in the field? Now, if we're talking about how... How do pediatric providers that are approached by uh, whoever it may be looking for grief and bereavement support um, for a person that is 18 years or older or has transitioned in their care and they're going to be transitioning them, you know, to adult services? And how do you refer them to the appropriate grief and bereavement services at that point is it really depends on uh, where one lives. <laughs> you know, we call it a postal lottery for healthcare here sometimes, right? Yeah, right. Um, yeah. E exactly. Uh, so to me, the speaking about adults, it, it you know, the starting point um, is Developmental Services Ontario. Um, and then identifying who are the developmental service providers in your area and reaching out to them. I have a, a preference. <laughs> My preference is that loss and grief uh, of individuals with, living with IDD that are adults, the best people to deliver that loss and grief is their d direct support team. Um, those that are delivering the care that know how they communicate, that they trust, those are the uh, and family, ideally the individuals that know this individual best, and social workers um, and counselors within the the developmental sector. When we're talking about adults, they have access to also behavioral analysts and all sorts of things. The unfortunate thing here. In Ontario and, and, um, and Canada, we have two separate ministries. Our care is compartmentalized under, you know, the ministry that oversees health care and long-term care. And then the direct port services, you know, is under the Ministry of Community and Social Services. <laughs> and never the twain shall meet. 
And so we're trying to create a bridge across those two. And then it's all about where do you find who is delivering that care? Now, it's different in urban areas to rural areas, right? So it's kind of, you have to do a bit of a search. And Tracy, given that bit of a search, should organizations, especially those who provide children's grief support, have a procedure for when such referrals are made that they've already done their search, they've already done their research for whatever demographic or geography they reside in, that this is what happens and this is what they do and they train their staff on it. Would that be, would that be beneficial? When you're talking about a referral framework or a policy or workflow, you know, this comes through on paper and we're going to pass it on sort of a thing. That's what I'm, I'm, what I'm postulating. Yeah. Well, I think you kind of already suspect what my response is going to be. <laughs> People are more than, than black uh, ink on, on paper. Um, and people reach out because they're desperately in need and help. And they need a live voice response. So my first thing is the best approach is whoever receives the call for help responds to it to the best of their ability. Nobody feels safe, feels heard, responded to, or that anybody gets their level of distress by saying, we've passed you on. And so they're in your arms for a period of time. At the very, at the very least, they just hear, need to hear someone say, my goodness, absolutely, let us help you. And we're right, and we're sticking with you until we can help you with the right person, service, team, or, or whatever that may, might be. So is there a best approach? Can you tie it into a, you know, a, a nice diagram workflow with arrows <laughs> yeah. and, and different boxes and things? I don't think so. People will reach out to who they know, who they have in a past relationship, and who they can find, right? And we don't want anyone to feel abandoned, and we don't anyone want anyone to get the feeling that they're forbidden to reach out to anyone because they don't fit within a narrow construct, right? And if they've had that past relationship with pediatric providers, they're going to go there. What we want is pediatric providers to know who and develop those relationships with the adult providers in the developmental sector and have some sense of who to go to to do that soft handover. That's my position. Adrian yeah. is better equipped to respond to that. <laughs> this is what she does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think you're you're on the right track here. And I think one of the things that I, I'm thinking is that, you know, in terms of creating pathways for referrals, I think it goes beyond kind of an awareness of what agencies provide what service to that piece that Tracy was saying about that soft handover. And I think that requires a greater kind of level of collaboration and partnership between agencies um, because we want the person to feel welcome in making the referral and we want to kind of make that process you know, smooth if we do need to refer on and, and kind of, I think, supporting the person in that process rather than saying, oh, you know, this is not the right place. Here's a number to call. I think we need to be a little more proactive um, in kind of, you know, how we, met, how we kind of respond to those referrals. Yeah. So I think a, a lot of it comes down to kind of that partnership and bridging 
kind of sectors. I think as Tracy was mentioning, our sectors are very much siloed. And I think we, we kind of need to be very proactive about how we kind of overcome those barriers and, and kind of create pathways. And although, unfortunately, I've seen it within, you know, hospice palliative care where referrals are made, here's a number call, even that's how some people come to my support groups and my, my, my mm-hmm. work in caregiver and bereavement support. I've found in children's grief, there is a bit, it's much more sensitive, person-centered approach. But what usually I find and see is that it isn't the referral that's made, it's that they are taken on. And I think sometimes that's where it becomes complicated and challenged. And that's what, you know, the hope today was to bring awareness of what can be done, what, what resources there are out there and how it can result in, you know, oftentimes infantilizing of people living with uh, IDD. Um, I think part of the kind of reason for a soft handover too is, is to ensure that the referral gets made and that the person that the person does get picked up because one of the things we run into is like sometimes the service will say, yes, we do take on these types of clients and then we make the referral and then we run into barriers. And so it's really helpful to have kind of a a professional involved who can kind of, you know, kind of respond to those barriers. Well said. Agreed. Uh, Tracy, you wanted to add something. Yeah. I just wanted to echo the, the point here that, you know, we're so honored to be on this podcast because as pediatric providers are getting referrals for adults living with IDD that are in need of loss, grief, and bereavement, that we want them to be aware of some of the connections and where they can go uh, and at least where to start the journey, Um, whether that DSO, Developmental Services of Ontario, whether that's you know, reaching out to places like Surrey Place or Connectability or some of the the well-known providers that we have here, Meta Center and Community Living Ontario, to, to try and get some of that direction when we're talking provider to provider referral kind of strategies for family or the individual themselves that's high-functioning we just want them to just make a call and know that, that there will be a response and a wraparound until they actually find the right place for them. Bereaved Families of Ontario are also starting to look at this and wanting to develop an, an approach and, and a group for people with IDD. So, you know, as awareness increases, those that have the heart respond, Right. We all have a heart for different things and a passion for different things. And that's the beauty of diversity. <laughs> and so we can, you know, if you build it, uh, people will come. I love that, Tracy. Those with the heart will respond. I love that. That's, that's my motto for the next decade. <laughs> I love that. I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, Adrian, Kara, and, and Tracy, anything else you'd like our, our listeners to know? Anything else you'd like to share? It's been so incredibly rich and involved today. Anything else you'd like to leave with us? It's Kara. I guess just based on the last piece of discussion, as someone who works outside of the, the developmental services sector, I would just say to my colleagues um, working in all kinds of different agencies, organizations, or private practices, you know, don't be afraid of offering support and you need to educate yourselves around what's available, what's not about 
the intersections of grief and disability, because I think both are topics that I have seen people shy away from. And, you know, to sort of echo what Tracy was saying is, you know, use your heart and, and follow that because there's such a huge need out there. Um, and it's not something to be afraid of or shy away from, but it does need you as the professional to become more educated in. Yeah, I think to kind of add to what Kara was saying, you know, people who do work in the DS sector are often very passionate about what they do and very passionate about sharing their knowledge. So, you know, as much as we, you know, try and do outreach, um, I think, you know, we're also very open to other agencies or clinicians um, reaching out and asking for support as well. Um, so I think there's huge opportunity um, for collaboration on both sides to kind of, uh, you know, optimize the care that um, clients receive. And I would add to my uh, colleagues by saying that the takeaway message that I would like to leave is that we want to set people up for healthy grieving because loss is expected in life circumstances for all of us. So we need to expect that, that grief and loss and bereavement is going to happen. Then we don't make an assumption um, that someone doesn't feel it because they can't express it or don't know how to express it. That we actually take the time to listen and ask. It always starts with asking, right? And when you don't know what to do, what's the best thing to do? It's just listen. And when we're not sure what to say, the most appropriate thing is just to listen. There are a lot of times in life when we're not sure what to say. But it's about listening and being there and being present with someone who's in emotional distress, who's experiencing loss, who's grieving. Uh, we have to be honest. We have to include our people living with IDD. And that whole process, that, that the people that matter to them, if they become ill and they're deteriorating, they should have been involved all the way along, you know? Um, and then when the individual dies, to be included in that, in the rites and the rituals, and it being explained in however communication works best for that individual. And we want to minimize changes. We want, we want them involved in funerals and memorials, even if the only thing is to stand up and say, this is my dad. We have to mark a loss for people to move into healthy grief. Without that, it, it becomes a high trigger for more complicated grief. I think many of us have seen elderly ladies in grocery stores just talk to anybody in the line to tell them that their husband, Bob, died. That's someone who didn't have the significant marked, the significance of a loss marked for them. Now, what's it like for individuals living with IDD? One story that I can share is an individual started saying, bad John, bad John, bad John, meaning himself. He was bad. Something he had done had stopped him from seeing his dad. And the reality is father had died, but he wasn't brought along that journey. So whether we mark it or not, it's going to have an impact. So let's mark it so it does not have that impact. Um, it all starts about giving meaning, um, assessing, right? And Adrian will talk more to that. But assessing, looking at how do they want to know and how do they want to communicate it? And they can tell us. 
right? Not everybody has such profound disability that they can't communicate with us, you know, and that time and being mindful of, of going to places that mattered, right? And tying it into wonderful warm memories and anniversaries are powerful dates, whether we remember them or not, the individual absolutely will. And so how do we include that in our caring and not to be afraid of people's reactions, right? We just need to be accompanying them and then get trained. What would you say, Adrian? Yeah, no, I think that's very well said. You know, I think we, you know, part of the, what can kind of help in terms of the assessment piece and understanding someone's experience of loss is to kind of provide them that, that kind of airspace to listen to them. Often these things come out over time and they may not come out in like the most direct way. So like, for instance, I had a client who, you know, was quite irritable with her staff and her staff couldn't figure out, you know, why is she so irritable all of a sudden? And I spoke with her at length and I, and then we, it came out that another resident in the home had passed away and that the client had all these questions about what happened to this person, you know, is there a funeral, like what's going on? And so then, you know, when we were able to connect with staff and talk to them about, you know, okay, she's got these questions, can we support her? You know, these behaviors disappeared. And so I think it kind of goes to what I think what we've been saying all along, which is to kind of include people to, you know, provide them information in a way that they can understand and give them some time to think about that and kind of see what comes out and, and be available to them. And, and segue from that, Adrian, it's almost as if you become a student to the person, is it not? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, Tracy, um, this reminds me in this, in this aspect of becoming someone's student of when I used to be at, you know, we used to be at Dorothy Lay Hospice in, in some ways. And, and Ron Lorette brought this concept of cultural humility of becoming someone's student, right? And, and that's mm-hmm. a, a model of engagement that you can apply in any domain of service to become their student, mm-hmm. to learn how they, how they think and how they cope and what they're experiencing and what is their you know, historical loss and, and where they're coming from when they say bad John, bad John, bad John. Right. And, right? and a, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Adrian. Yeah. Those other models, you know, that, that you're so gifted at, at, at teaching, you know, trauma informed care approaches and dignity conserving care. This all gets wrapped up into this same topic too. It all Without a doubt, without a doubt. I can't thank you enough for your, all that you shared today, your wisdom, your humility and how you delivered it, the experience and expertise, and it's invaluable. And, and I'm so excited to share this. It, it literally is with, with the world because the world is a very small place and we've done our demographics of this and people are listening to this in South Africa and Australia and Russia and UK and South America. So it's, uh, it's exciting that your voices will be heard across this very small world. Hooray! <laughs> <laughs> I love it, Tracy. <laughs> Folks, if, if you want more uh, information about our organization, please visit us at www.lighthousegriefsupport.org. Check out our social media, our Instagram, and our Facebook. 
And please stay safe out there. This COVID thing is not over. My partner has just been hammered with COVID recently and she's quadruple vaccinated. So we are still in the midst. I hear a lot of people saying, oh, when COVID was here. I'm like, no, it's it's still here and it's still very amongst amongst us. So please stay safe. And once again, thank you ladies for all that you shared today. Thank you so much for having us, Rami. And a final word. This podcast is an honor of Claire Staniforth.